Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. What does it mean to be worldly? How do you know if you are worldly? All of us are Christians, are claimed to be here, and to a person, we don't want to be worldly. We know that that's wrong. But as Pastor Good, the former pastor up at Faith Church in Lafayette, used to say, we don't grow in fuzzy land. So we do need to define more specifically, what does it actually mean to be worldly? How do you know if you're doing it? And how do you avoid doing it? I want to start by telling you several things that worldliness is not. You can be worldly and do these things, and many do. But in itself, these are not worldliness. First, it doesn't necessarily mean you're worldly if you live in the world. <laughs> Where else would you live? <laughs> you have to interact with the physical world. You have to eat food. So you have to work in the world with unbelievers around you. There's not another way. The Amish have perhaps done the best of trying to avoid that, but even for them, they are in the world. <laughs> That's not necessarily worldly, that you work and live and go to the grocery store in the world. Secondly, it's not necessarily worldly for you to interact with worldly people. Paul said, if you were not to interact with any worldly people, you would need to go out of the world. <laughs> not an option at the moment for us. It doesn't make you worldly because you interact with worldly people. You're put here as a Christian to do just that, to seek and to save the lost like your Savior. Third, it does not necessarily mean you're worldly if you have more money than other people have. The whole history of Christians and believers that we find even in the Bible is full of people who have more money and people who have less money. And you would say, relative to what? I guess to each other? Abraham was a rich believer and Lazarus was a poor believer and Lydia was a rich Christian and Onesimus was a poor Christian and none of them were necessarily worldly. Fourthly, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're worldly if you dress and decorate your home or apartment and eat and talk according to the customs of this generation or that generation or a younger generation or an older generation. There are some elements of every generation that are worldly, and we'll talk about those things, but some other customs are simply neutral. For all of us, as we get older and you look at the next generations, just because you don't like or understand the styles, it feels like that's worldly. <laughs> Not necessarily. Styles in music, styles in hair, styles in clothes. It's not necessarily worldly. Fifthly, doesn't mean you're worldly if you know more about the culture that you live in than others do. If you understand pop culture references, I don't tend to get them. Maybe you understand more of them. And that doesn't automatically make you worldly. Paul could cite Greek thinkers who are not believers but were popular in his day, and he did. Doesn't necessarily mean you're worldly because you know some of those things. 
These are not the essence of worldliness. So what does it mean to be worldly? I'm going to answer that in this entire message because it's the focus of our passage, but I can just begin by saying worldliness is not primarily something I can see on you, clothes you're wearing, the hair. Worldliness is primarily an attitude of the heart. It is a disposition that you have. It is an approach to God, an approach to sin, an approach to life itself. It is the direction you set your heart in. It's more than just you smoked a cigarette. It is the full trajectory of your life. That's why you can find people who are very prim and proper and very worldly. And you can find people who are explicitly godless and very worldly. They're everywhere in every echelon of society. It's not a particular culture echelon. They're worldly. It's found everywhere because it is a turning of the heart in a particular direction. At essence, that is worldliness. And then you see lots of things follow from that, which we'll talk about today. In some, worldliness is an anti-God way of thinking and therefore of living. It is, in some ways, a taste where you relish the things that God hates and you are almost instinctually nauseated by the things God loves. This is worldliness. And it's this taste, if you will, that we are looking more precisely at today. And the person who's going to give us a precise view of what this worldly taste is, is John the Apostle. Here in 1 John chapter 2, as he begins to talk about the world. Let's look at this starting in verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. So here is a rather full definition of the world and of worldliness. In fact, he pauses right there in the middle of our passage to give us a threefold description of what worldliness actually is. It's desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, pride of life. So what we're going to do now is, in keeping with this text, look first at what the command itself is. Don't be worldly. What does that mean? He'll tell us. But then this passage also has multiple reasons for you not to be worldly. So you have the command, you have the because. <laughs> Why should you not be worldly? Because. So let's look at it in that light, starting just with the command itself. Return to the beginning of our text. Here it is. Do not love the world or the things in the world. 
So if we're actually going to obey what's being told to us here, you understand this is why we have to define worldliness. We have to know what it is we're avoiding doing here exactly. So let's continue the definition we started in the introduction. We said what worldliness is not. We started it to say what worldliness is, an attitude of the heart, but let's get more specific because John does too. And to do that, if we want to know a definition of worldliness, you're going to have to start with a definition of the world. The command is don't love the world. Now this command, do not love the world, maybe when you first hear that, it's a little confusing because you know John 3.16, don't you? <laughs> God loved the world, and you may wonder if God so loved the world that he sent his son into it, why am I being forbidden by John, who wrote John 3.16, by the way, Forbidden from loving the same world that God loves. Aren't I supposed to be like God in loving the world? Now this is a knot that's very easily untied if you just recognize that just like with many of our words in English, the word world that's being used here can have multiple meanings. And it's used differently by John in John 3.16 and here in 1 John 2. Really, the world can have at least three meanings. And you probably already know this. Number one, in the Bible, world can simply mean this material planet that we live upon. It's the physical world, and we use the word that way often, this world. Number two, world can mean the people, or animals sometimes, but especially the people who live on the planet that we call the world. So John 3.16, that's the definition that's being used, for God so loved the world, it's not telling us that he loved the trees and scenery, beautiful as those are. It's telling us God so loved the people who lived on the world that he sent his son to die, that some may be saved from them. But what's important for us to know in 1 John 2 is that world can have a third meaning. The first meaning, the planet. The second meaning, the people on the planet. The third meaning, the evil in the people on the planet. <laughs> World can refer to sort of the summary of all the evil that we find in the world. It is the evil world system, the zeitgeist, the attitude that people on the world in a fallen world have toward God. It's anti-God. And Satan is the ruler of the world in this sense. He and his demons influence mankind. If you are here and you do not yet know Christ, you are, according to Scripture, still enslaved to the devil. You are part of this evil world system that is in every way in opposition to God. So when Jesus comes into the world, it's to pull some of his people out of the world. Not that we get sucked up into the sky, but he pulls us out of the evil world system, transfers us to his kingdom. That is a third meaning of world. And this passage only makes sense if you understand that's what he means by world. Do not love the world. You can appreciate the planet. <laughs> That's fine. Say, so am I not allowed to look at the Grand Canyon and be amazed anymore? No, he's not meaning it that way. Do not love the world. Should I not love my neighbors? No, love your neighbors. Do not love the world, meaning do not love the evil world system with all of its temptations, all of its anti-godness. Do not love that. Do not love the evil that you find in the world. Does that make sense? So that's the definition of world. Knowing that, we can move into what does it mean 
to be worldly because you're commanded not to be in this text. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. And again, what are the things in the world? He's not thinking rocks and trees. He says in verse 16, the things that are in the world. This is what makes up the world. The desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life. Here is worldliness. That's worldliness. I know we tend to look on the outside of things and say, well, worldliness is if you smoke and chew and go with girls who do. <laughs> no, this is worldliness. Threefold description, and they're all states of the heart. Worldliness is to live for the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride of life. What your life looks like externally will follow. There will be certain characteristics that you find, but at essence, it's these things. This is worldliness. Otherwise, you're going to look at people who've had a nice background, who grow up and have great self-control, even as unbelievers, and who tend to smile and say the right things, and you'll think, there's no way they're worldly. But that's not the way the Bible presents it. They are just as likely to be worldly as the person you would imagine in your mind to be worldly. So let's look at these three descriptions of what the world is. Here's worldliness. You want to know it so you can avoid it? <laughs> you do, because it says to. Then let's look at them one at a time. First, worldliness, the world. It is comprised of desires of the flesh. Now, this was one-third of the downfall of our first parent, Eve, you remember that in the garden, it says, when the woman saw that the tree, which God had forbidden her, was good for food, she took of its fruit and ate. It's good for food. It satisfies a physical hunger. If you take yourself over to the temptations of Jesus in the wilderness so long later, this was also one third of the temptation that was given to Jesus. It says, quote, and after fasting 40 days and 40 nights... Hard to imagine. It says, he was hungry. And the tempter, Satan, came just as he did into the garden, said to Jesus, if you're the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Jesus, as a human, did not have sinful flesh, but he had flesh. He had a body. And that body had hunger, just like Eve's did, just like ours does. Desires of the flesh... Or what happened when Satan, the world, the flesh, when we take something that God created to be natural, neutral, good in your physical body because you exist as a body, a neutral instinct, we could say, a natural drive or instinct, and sin comes in and takes those and tries to push them beyond the boundaries God has set. That's desires of the flesh. So take anything. Take hunger. You were created with a stomach and a whole digestive system, and your stomach, the lining of it, I guess, right, indicates to your brain when you are hungry. Some of you are hungry right now. Sorry to remind you. So you're hungry, and what are you going to do when you leave here? You're going to go eat some food. Is that because you're following the desires of the flesh? <laughs> no. You were created that way. Desires of the flesh is when because of that natural instinct, you are willing to go beyond the boundaries God has set. God created the Garden of Eden with the fruit tree in it 
and all the other trees. And Eve could eat from all the other trees, simply not this one. God makes a fence around a single tree among many, many trees. And Satan comes in and suggests, God just wants you to be hungry. <laughs> God's not really good. He doesn't really want to satisfy you. And Eve looks around like, well, I mean, contrary evidence, there's a lot of trees. But he puts the focus on the one in the fence and says, yeah, but if you can't have that one that God won't let you have, you'll never be satisfied. So being hungry is not wrong. God provides your stomach and provides you with food. But when you eat to excess in order to drown out sorrows that you should be taking to the Lord, now you've gone beyond the boundary. That's a desire of the flesh. Similarly, God creates humans with a sexual drive. It's part of the cultural mandate God gave. Multiply, have children, and that's a normal thing in life. And God says, and here's the fencing right here. Just stay within the fence of marriage. It's a good thing. God provides for it, provides for the satisfaction of it. Desires of the flesh only happen when we go outside the fence. Before marriage, outside of marriage, outside of the fence God has put for our good, not for our bad, for our good. And we go outside of that. It becomes an idol of the heart that I must satisfy, and I don't care what God or anyone says. At that point, it's an instinct in our bodies that we are willing to go against God's will to satisfy in our own way, not the way God wants us to. That's a desire of the flesh. So when you are reading the New Testament and you see the word flesh, or even here you see desires of the flesh, most often the reference is to sexual temptations. That's where you see it most clearly. It's the wild dogs that break loose out of the fence and just go. If going outside God's boundaries in sexual areas characterizes your life. Not a temptation you're fighting and wrestling with and giving to God and praying over and fighting and repenting of and fighting. I'm not talking about that. If it characterizes your life. If you're not like Job who made a covenant with his eyes not to look upon someone, not his wife. If you didn't even make that covenant, <laughs> you just look, you know, it's fine. You're worldly. You're worldly. And as we'll see, you're not a believer. You can't be a believer and be that if it characterizes your life. This is what's in the world, desires of the flesh. Fulfilling your natural instincts, but however you want, without a thought to the will of God. Peter describes such people as, quote, those who indulge the lust of defiling passion. Paul says that they are, quote, slaves to various passions and pleasures. The first part of worldliness is lust. It's lust. So you say, how do I know if I'm worldly? Are you fighting lust? Are you fighting these temptations? Furthermore, John defines worldliness as desires of the eyes. Say, so what does that mean, desires of the eyes? We could put lustful looks in there. Jesus said, if you look at someone and lust after them, they're not your spouse. You've already committed that sin in your heart. We could put that there, but since he just said desires of the flesh, probably let's put that there on that category. And when we look at desires of the eyes, I think what John is referring to is the 10th commandment, covetousness. So return to Eve in the garden and see the second third of her downfall. Quote, when the woman saw that the tree was a delight to the eyes. 
She took of its fruit and ate. She saw it. She wanted it. God said no. She broke through the fence and took it. Or you go again to the hot wilderness and see the devil set all the kingdoms of the world and their glory before Jesus' sight. It says he showed Jesus to his eyes all the kingdoms of the world and their glory in a moment of time and said, if you bow down to me, I'll give these to you. They weren't there for Jesus to just take with his hand at the moment as a man, but instead the devil set them there and said, look at them. Of course, it is not a sin for you to look at things with your eyes. <laughs> it's okay for you to look at things with your eyes. It's even okay for you to look at many things on earth and to appreciate something of the beauty of them. If you're looking for a house right now in this crazy house market, you're looking for a house, you have to look at them and you have to like what you're looking at to buy the house. You have to want it or you're not going to buy it. So where is the line into coveting? <laughs> you see a nice car on the road and you say, that's a nice car. Are you coveting? Are you worldly? Not necessarily, but at some point we do cross a line. Again, it's about the boundaries God has set. God gives you eyeballs, lets you look at things, lets you appreciate aesthetically things, but he sets boundaries for us. Here's how he gives it in the Ten Commandments. Here's the boundary he sets. He says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. Notice, it's not your house and it's not up for sale. <laughs> it's your neighbor's house. You got your house and he's got his house or her house. Don't covet, desire, crave, I need it, your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, not yours, your neighbor's or his male servant in that context, female servant, or his ox or his donkey. And you say, phew, I've never coveted an ox or a donkey. <laughs> well, that's why it ends, quote, or anything that is your neighbor's. We succumb to the desires of the eyes, not when we look at something and say, that's nice. Not even if you look at something and say, oh, that's nice. Maybe someday I'll have something like that. It's when you look at something and you have to have it. And you are upset that that other person has it and you don't. At this point, the only thing you've done is look with your eyes. That's why they're desires of the eyes. You maybe didn't even touch it. You're just there looking at something that's your neighbor's. It's someone else's. God's not given it to you. You're there looking, but that look festers in your heart, awakens a desire, and now you have to have it as if your arm's reaching out, metaphorically, to grab it and to take it. Even if the other person's holding on, I will rip it from you. I want it, which means if you don't have it and you're sad about that, too bad. It's about me getting what you have. Do you see how something that started as a normal desire, oh, that's nice, broke out of the fence like a raging bull and is charging and it tramples people. That's coveting. One easy way to know, am I desiring in a normal way or am I coveting is by asking yourself these two questions. Number one, that thing that I am appreciating, would I be willing to sin to get it? Or number two, the thing I'm appreciating, if God never gives it to me, would I sin? If the answer to either of those are yes, you are coveting. It is a desire of the eyes. You are craving something God's not given to you. This desire of the eyes is a reminder to us that beauty, which God has made to be appreciated, you see a beautiful sunset, 
God makes people beautiful. He makes certain things beautiful. It's totally fine. It's wonderful scripture. Even in the Bible, talks about David was a beautiful or a handsome man. Talks about people can be beautiful. It's fine. Some of us are. Some of us are. It doesn't matter. It's fine. God creates things that are beautiful. But beauty, which you can appreciate, can lead the heart astray. It's important to point this out, desire of the eyes, because in our culture, one of the primary ways this happens is through Hollywood. It is through movies, and I'm not trying to be stodgy, say, we don't watch any movies, we just read books. You can watch some movies, but you understand that when you're watching a movie, there is a level of appeal or beauty, both in the people, all of their teeth are white, all of their hair is nice, everything is great, because that's literally their full-time jobs to look nice. And then there's the beautiful Southern California climate where these things are being made. And here we are in Evansville and you watch that movie. God, it's so beautiful. (laughs) Well, that's fine until that beauty becomes a tool that the world uses to lure you into approving of things that God hates, whether that's extramarital activities or it's just mindsets that are totally anti-God. And you see beautiful people welcoming you in. Come here. We approve of this. Look, with a big smile that's very shiny. So come here and smile and approve too. And it becomes a temptation. Your eyes, desire of the eyes, willing to disobey God, to be lured away. This is why we read that Satan himself disguises himself as an angel of light. Why of light? This is beautiful. It looks good, but it's a disguise. This desire of the eyes, this worldliness, is what we find in Achan, troubler of Israel, who saw among the spoil of Jericho when God said, take nothing, he saw a beautiful cloak of Shinar. He saw 200 shekels of silver glistening in the sunlight. He saw a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels. That just means it was big. I saw, he says when he confesses it, and then I coveted them and took them. That first part, I saw, was not a sin. The second part, I coveted. The third, I took. Those were sin. He was still in the fence. Then he was out of the fence. Appreciation, desire of the eyes. To want what God has not given you, to wish it was yours rather than your neighbor's in a selfish way, and not to be satisfied or content unless you get it, that is worldliness. That is covetous. So worldliness is first, unrestrained desire, lust. Secondly, it's covetousness, this craving after things in the world. Now we move to the third, perhaps the worst, probably the worst of all the aspects of worldliness. Pride of life. Let's go one more time to Eve in the garden. When the woman saw that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. With the echoing sound of Satan's hissing voice telling her, if you eat this fruit, you'll become wise. You will become like God, knowing good and evil. It says, when she realized it was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. Or go again into the wilderness The desert heat where you have the devil setting our Savior upon the pinnacle of the temple, pretty high up, saying, if you're the Son of God, show off, prove it, make it clear, throw yourself down, and the angels will catch you, and everyone will be amazed. 
They won't persecute you and put you on a cross. They'll worship you. They'll go, wow, do it. Pride of life. Pride takes a lot of forms. You know that. So many more forms than we wish it did. But the specific kind of pride that's focused upon in this text is what he calls a pride of life. And the word for life that he's using there has a pretty clear reference to possessions, to the things that you own, your house, your car, your clothes, your iPhone or whatever phone you have. Those are your life in this text. And it is a pride that is built upon the things that you possess. It's fitting that we call this worldliness because although we're not talking about the physical world necessarily, there's a hint of it in here. The things you possess, they're on this world. And it's your pride based on those things that is worldliness. Now, all of you have things. This is a sort of governmental system where we possess private property. Praise God. That's wonderful. I have things. You have things. And that's not bad. Some of you have more things than others. How do you know if you have a pride of the things that you possess? C.S. Lewis put it better than I can, so I'll quote him. He talked about how pride is competitive by nature, and this is what he said. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something. Only having out of having more of it than the next man. We say people are proud of being rich, pride of life. Or clever or good-looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It is the comparison that makes you proud. The pleasure of being above the rest. This is worldliness. It's not that you possess things. It's not even a particular quantity of your possessions. Abraham had a lot of possessions. That's not worldliness once you reach a certain income. Now you're worldly. No, worldliness is this sinful competitive spirit based upon what you possess. It's I have a nicer car than you have. And we don't say it because we're Christians, right? We don't say lies, right? So, but that's what we think. I have a nicer car than you have. And therefore, you know, I'll do the talk and you do the listening. <laughs> I have a nicer house than you have. I live in a better part of town than you do. Therefore, when I say something, it should carry more weight. You can say what you want, you know, but it shouldn't carry as much weight as what I say because my life's been prosperous and successful. I'm clearly doing things right and you're not. <laughs> this is pride of life. You go to meet your neighbor, you go to meet someone and you're running through your mind. Okay, we're just going to chat, get to know each other for the first time. What are the things I need to throw in there to make sure that my neighbor knows I'm in the sort of state of life that I am, you know, my education and make sure they saw my house, make sure they know, you know, I don't want them to think I'm a nobody. Pride of life. Any confidence that you base upon the things that you have, especially in relation to others having less, that's worldliness. When we do that, we are like Nebuchadnezzar, that king of so long ago, walking on his rooftop, looking down on my career, looking down on my family, very well behaved, looking down on my income, looking down on my house, looking down on whatever I possess, my education, my, how many degrees I have, and I look down and I say, 
Is not this Babylon the great that I have built for myself as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? <laughs> Don't look at your spouse, but some of you think, oh, my spouse does that. A pride in what I have, a pride in my status, a pride in the neighborhood I live in, a pride in how much education I've received, anything that I use in my mind to put myself above others. You're a Christian. You understand your calling is always to put yourself beneath the dirty feet of other people. But pride of life does just the opposite. The greatest of all commands that Jesus gave on earth is love your neighbor. Pride is exactly the opposite of that. Love is, I will sacrifice myself for your good, and pride is, I will sacrifice you for my good. You're beneath my feet. This is worldliness. This is pride. So I hope you can see now, this is the essence of worldliness. It is unrestrained lust. It is a covetousness. I need. It is a pride of life, either possessions or something about me that sets me apart and above you. These are the things that make up worldliness. Let me ask you, is that you? All of us struggle with this, but if it characterizes your life, you are worldly. And John's command to you is, listen, don't. Don't love the world. I know it shines so bright. I know it looks so ni nice and its teeth are so white. Don't love the world. You say, it's hard not to love the world, all the things you listed. Of course it is, and that's why in our passage, John now gives us two reasons for you not to love the world. Let me give them to you. So from the command, we move to the because. First, you should not be worldly because the world is godless. Look at this in verse 15, halfway through. If anyone loves the world, so you don't obey John, he said, don't love the world. He said, I'm going to do it anyways. If anyone loves the world, you cannot love the Father. The love of the Father, and I take that to be the love for the Father, is not in you. Jesus said the chief of the commands, seconds love your neighbor, the chief of the commands is to love the Lord your God with all your heart. Notice that that command is not, you shall love the Lord your God, period. Very specifically, it is, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. Jesus said, you cannot have two masters. So if you want to take one part of your heart and say, God, this part of my heart is for you. I love you with this whole subsection. I love you with this one-fourth of my heart. And the rest goes to everything else. That would be like taking the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament and setting it in the house of Dagon. <laughs> say, you're one of our gods among the other ones. Hooray. You remember what happened to poor Dagon. His statue fell down and the head was severed and the arms were off. God does not accept competition like that. So one reason that you should not love the world is God says, if you're going to go out and mess around with the world as your lover, don't come home to me. I don't accept a mistress. I'm not going to accept, just like a, a wife is not going to accept that in a husband, you go mess around but come back to me. And God says, no, I'm not going to accept that. If, you're, if your heart is really for the world that shines so brightly and you're not going to keep any of the boundaries, you're just going to do your own thing all week and then you'll come here on Sunday and say, oh, God, I love you. And God says in this text, you don't love me. If you love the world, 
It's right there. I'm not making it up. You do not love the Father. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, not part of it. To live in lust and pride and then to say I love God, it would be like, I don't know, being in high school and you go sign up for the after school Christian club on Tuesday and every Wednesday you go to the after school atheist club. <laughs> My high school had both, you know. And you just go to both and you love them both. Wow, these are great. You say, those don't really, you know, those don't really jive. <laughs> They're very different. It would be like you signing away your summer or some part of your life to lobby and labor with all of your might to get a particular political candidate elected here. And you're working and you're sending out flyers and you're knocking on doors and you're calling people, working, 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 working for half of the time. And then as the election gets closer, say, all right, pause on that. You go to the other candidate they're running against and you're sending out flyers and you're calling people. I say, didn't you just call me to vote for that person? You can't do both, right? You can only pick one. They're antithetical. Only one's going to get elected. And that's what John is saying. Here's God. Here's the world. You can't love both. You have to pick which one you're going to love. It's not going to be perfect, but you have to make a choice. Every single one of us has to make a choice at some point. God doesn't accept this, and many of us have been there. God doesn't accept this where you have one foot in the world, one foot in Christianity, and, you know, they're dividing. <laughs> you're starting to do the splits, but you're trying the best you can to live in both worlds. And God says, no. Make a choice. Just like in the Old Testament. Look, if God's God, then worship Him. And if Baal's God, then worship Baal. But stop being divided between two opinions. You've got to pick one of them. That's what He says. Do not love the world... Because if you do, you cannot love the Father. The world is godless. It's the first reason that he gives for you to not love the world. Here's the second reason that he gives. Secondly, not only is the world godless, but the world is going away. See this in verse 17. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. You do not invest your whole life savings into one stock if you know without a doubt it is about to tank, or cryptocurrency, whatever you're doing. You do not take all your life savings that your family is quite certainly depending on, and you say, honey, I've got an idea. You take it all, you place it into a company that everyone knows is going right down the tubes, and you know it too, and I come to you and I say, please don't do that. That's all the money you've saved up. It's going to be gone in like a few months. And you respond and say, oh, I know that. I mean, that's pretty obvious to everyone. I'm not doing it to get a return. I'm just doing it for fun. <laughs> well, you either need to get your definition of fun checked out or your head or something because that is not fun. You are literally throwing away all of that money. Now, if you think that is bizarre, imagine if you threw away more than your money, if you threw away your life itself, your whole substance, everything you are, all of your energies, all of your future, all of your hope, all of your happiness into eternity, and you throw it away. You take all of it out of your savings account. You invest the entire thing in the world. And John says, look, the world is tanking. You don't know that? The world is passing away. And all of the desires, 
the pride and the pleasures that you cherish now, they're all going down the tubes. None of them are lasting. And you want to tie yourself with a chain to this boat that's sinking fast. So it's just for fun. It's not fun. It's not fun. The world is going away. You want to go away with it. Then don't attach yourself to it. Don't love the world. The temptation for us is in this world to be so attached to it, to build our bigger barns, to work the longer hours. If I could just get the next promotion, if I could just get my kids into that college, I know I'm going to have to sacrifice a lot. I'm not going to be at church much, but if I can just get them into that, then they'll be set for life, and I'll, then I'll fix things up, be spiritual, do all the right stuff. You are chaining yourself to a world system and all of its anti-God values, and it's sinking fast. And you don't get to choose how soon it sinks. Jesus is going to return. This world, Scripture says, is going to be burnt up, and God's going to make a new world. You don't want to build your house on the sand that is shifting. I remember when we were looking at houses, we went to one, and it was cracked down the middle of the foundation, and the house was going like this. I thought, who are you going to sell that to? Don't buy that kind of house. Don't let that be your life where you've built yourself on a foundation that is failing. Jesus says when the storms come, meaning mainly his return, when I come back, the storm of judgment, you're going down with the world. If you build bigger barns and that's what your whole life is focused on and you're not rich toward God, then here's what God says to you. Fool! Fool! This night, your soul is required of you, and the things you've prepared, whose will they be? And the answer is not yours. This is how James puts it. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. And here's how John puts it. And the world is passing away along with its desires. You are spending all your time frantically packing your bags for a trip that's never going to happen if you're living for this world and its desires. Rust and moth will eat what you've prepared. Thieves will steal what you buy. Fire will burn away everything that remains. So John says, the world is already, it's already happening. It is passing away. Don't put your stock in it. Don't love the world. But now as we end see this final line that John gives us, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. You don't have to live outside the boundaries of God. You do not have to live for the pleasures and for the lusts of this world and for pride, even if you have. You don't have to do it anymore. It's not something necessary. It's not something that you have to do. Say, I want to get out from it, but it's so tempting. It's so alluring. I don't know how to. Then what you do is you look over there and you see. See those feet hanging, fittingly, high above the earth. Those are the feet of Jesus, a Savior who died for worldly people. He says he was lifted up from the world so that all on the world might look at him and be saved. He is lifted up from the world now. And there you are digging in the dirt, maybe living in lust. Or maybe you're a Christian and you're tempted to return to old habits, old ways of life that you know are worldly. And Jesus from the cross is calling to you, not down there, up here. You say, oh, that looks painful. Not as painful as that will be when the world passes away. If you look up to Christ... That man raised up for you to look upon, then 
Even though James says to be friendly with the world is to be God's enemy, he'll clear the enmity away. God doesn't have to be your enemy. He is if you're worldly, antithetical. Jesus clears it by his own blood. But more than that, you say the world is so alluring. It's so hard to resist its call. I know, it is. But Jesus offers his hand. Not only will he clear your record and make you heavenly, but he will assist you every step of the way. He showed us how to live in the world, but not of the world. And he will give you the strength and the power to do that. The feet are suspended. You need only to look there. You say, well, I don't know that I... It's just such a Every day, I'm going to be tempted every day. Maybe you're struggling with sexual temptations or others. You just think, I don't know I can do this my whole life. I don't know I can keep resisting this. Jesus was tempted as you are, but without sin. And he says, I will walk with you every day. Don't think 10 years down the road. Today, we're fighting worldliness. Today, we're obeying the command not to love the world. Just look to me, Jesus says. Look to me and be saved, and I will assist you all the way. I will give you all the strength you need to not live for the world, but for another world. And if you look to Christ, then you will live. You will live forever, or as John says, doing his will, you will abide forever. May that be true of every one of us in this room. Let's pray. Oh God, this morning, as your people, we re-swear against the world. We recommit ourselves against its lures and temptations. Odysseus, in his zeal, had himself tied to a ship's mast so that he would not be lured away by beautiful voices, then whatever it takes, <laughs> wax in the ears to not hear the cries, whatever it takes for us not to be lured in by the undue, unfit, unclean pleasures of this world, the serpent's forked tongue inviting us to separate ourselves from your will, whatever is required to avoid that, Lord, grant it to us. Whatever is required to humble our pride, be it ever so painful, bring it into our life. Let us be separated from this world for we have died and our life is hidden with Christ in you. Let us therefore not fix our mind on things that are on the earth, on mere mortal, human, temporary, passing, insignificant things. Money, desire, Lord, teach us instead to obey you and to do your will out of a heart that loves you, out of a heart that loves your gospel, that loves Christ's mercy, that extends itself to pull us out of this world into another world. Please help us not to be worldly. And for any here who are in two places right now, who are of two minds with the world on one side and God on the other, both calling and inviting, but are not sure which way they will go, I pray that you would win this debate I pray that you would woo them by your goodness, that you would woo them by all of the arguments presented in this text and more and draw them to yourself, that they would forsake the world and in forsaking it say with Paul, I have given up nothing but rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.